Corinthians chapter 10, as we continue through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We're down to verse 14 of chapter 10, and Paul begins verse 14 with the word, therefore. And this section begins with that word, therefore, and it runs all the way through the first part of chapter 11. And it constitutes the climax of Paul's argument that began back in chapter 8 about concerning food offered to idols. Uh, in its immediate context, the command of verse 14 is the practical conclusion of the warnings about the power and the subtlety of temptation. Go back with me to verse 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, uh, but beyond... Let me, I'm sorry, let me start again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word therefore goes back to what Paul has just said, that no temptation has overtaken any of us, that, it, that is not common to all of us, but God is faithful. God will always provide a way of escape. And he says, therefore, flee from idolatry. God can be trusted to provide the way out. The question is, can we be trusted to take it? To take that way out. To flee implies speed and determination. To run as fast as you can. To put as much distance between us and the temptation as we possibly can. Idolatry is such a, an all-devouring monster that will completely take over everything in our life. And there can be no compromise there can be absolutely no compromise when it comes to uh, serving God. Paul knew that he had to win the Corinthians' minds to the truth before it would change their behavior. It's the mind. The mind is the battlefield. Did you know that? The mind is the battlefield. Satan att attacks the mind. And when our minds, Paul says that we are to uh, renew our minds. We need to fill our minds with things that are pure and holy and good. How much time do you spend a day reading God's Word? How much time do you spend a day meditating on God's Word? How much time do you spend thinking about the sermon that you heard? How much time do we spend filling our minds with the things of God rather than the trash of the world? Because you see, our behavior will only change when we have the right stuff up here. And that's why the battlefield, the mind is the battlefield. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for all, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not 
are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? There in verse 16, Paul gives two rhetorical questions. That makes his point. And he's talking here about the Lord's Supper. Now, he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper uh, here. And in in chapter 11, he's going to get really into it. And it's so important. I think that many times we fail to understand how important, how holy it is for us to partake in the Lord's Supper, to come to the Lord's table together. And Paul here is going to make a comparison. Uh, He says that bread is broken as a sign of the body of Christ that was broken for us, that uh, wine is drunk in thanksgiving for the blood of Christ, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And Paul's point is that this constitutes not just a remembrance of what Christ has done, but a participation in it, in, in, in what he has done in the body of Christ. <clears throat> the word that Paul uses there for fellowship, it's the Greek word koinonia. koinonia. I don't know if I'm saying that word right or not, but it refers to the sharing of the same values among them. As believers, we often gather together and we call it a fellowship. But do you know there's only one thing that makes it a fellowship? And that's when we share the same values, when we share the same thoughts, when we have the same goals. When the Bible talks about the church being in unity, to be, we, we are to be in unity with one another. But that doesn't mean that we all think exactly alike. There doesn't mean that I don't have an opinion that's different from somebody else's. But what it does mean is that our ultimate goal to glorify Christ, we are unified in that. To be the body of Christ, we are unified in that. And so Paul talks about the fellowship. But let me ask you something. To have fellowship with one another... The way that the Bible calls us to have fellowship doesn't mean that we simply go in there and sit down and eat. It means that we get together and we talk about Christ together. That's the one thing every believer has in common above everything else is Christ. And we, how many times do we sit down and we eat? We talk about everything under the sun except Him. I'm just guilty as this anybody else is. But we need to think about this. And Paul says, look, uh, to eat and dr- the, to eat the bread and drink the cup of blessing at the Lord's table, this, this is not a meaningless act. As a matter of fact, when we get over into chapter 11, we're going to find that when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper there, he talks about eating and drinking it in an unworthy manner. Now, one of the, mo- the, the most unworthy manner that you can partake of the Lord's table is when you're not saved. But there are those who were saved who were coming, and we'll see that, see, they didn't have the Lord's Supper like we do. They had a feast. They had a whole meal. And there were people who were getting drunk at the meal, and they were, they were uh, taken away from those who didn't have anything. And Paul says that those who partake in an unworthy manner, he says, God judged them. He said, some have, this is Paul's nice way of saying they're dead, they fell asleep in the Lord. You see how God takes that serious? And so we need to understand this is not a meaningless act. It's an expression of faith in the atoning sacrifice that joins us to Christ, and it expresses and deepens our dependence upon Him for salvation. The fellowship does not end there. It doesn't just end 
at the Lord's Supper. Verse 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we come to the Lord's table, we come as His people. We come as the Lord's people, and, and we join with fellow believers everywhere who make up the body of Christ. Listen, right now, there is a church somewhere in New York, and there are, they, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a church somewhere in Russia, in China, in Japan. And they are just as much a brother and sister in Christ to me as you are. And, and together we make up the body of Christ. We, we, we share a, a, a love feast, a fellowship meal. We belong to one another because we belong to Him. We are part of the body of Christ. Verse 18 shows us exactly the same principle applied in the Old Testament that was uh, expressed in the fellowship of the sacrificial system. Paul says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? You remember what we talked about last week? That when God was on the mountain and Moses was there with him and God was, finger of God was writing out the Ten Commandments, putting the law of God down, you shall have no other gods before me. And what were the people doing? They were down at the bottom of the mountain and they were dancing and they were eating and they were drinking and they were worshiping a golden calf. And Paul says, look, these two things don't go together. Paul's making a comparison here between worshiping the one true God and worshiping idols. The animals offered to God were the means by which a sinner could draw near to a holy God in a sacrificial system. And what did all those sacrifices point to? All the sacrifices that Israel would, day after day and year after year, would bring, and the priest would slaughter the animal, and they would sprinkle the blood on the, of, the, of the sacrifice, and it all pointed to one place. Christ. The cross. Do you know what this points to? The cross. It points back to the cross. They knew that they were affirming all that the altar and its sacrifices stood for as regards to the character of God. See, when we come to this table, when we gather together for the Lord's Supper, we need to remember three very important things. We need to remember God's holiness, God's justice, and God's grace. God takes His worship seriously. We've talked about this uh, on, on Wednesday nights. We've been talking about this in the book of Ezra, that when we come together, we come together to worship God in spirit and in truth, to worship Him. The, the, the word worship is made up of two words, which means worth-ship. What is God worth? What is God worth to us? That's what we say. That's what we do when we worship. We show what God is worth, and God is holy and God has demanded that we must approach Him only His way. I'm not free to come into this building and worship God ever how I please. There are some people who have done that. Nadab and Abihu are two of those. Of course, they died on the spot when they did. Because we are to approach God. And when we gather, and Paul, here's the point Paul's making. These Corinthians were saying, look, 
we go, we go to these places where they offer food to idols. We know that these idols are nothing. But you know what? We're saved. And it's all right for us to be in that environment. And Paul's saying, you're dead. You're, you're walking a dangerous ground right there. And he says, you're, you're, you're facing a temptation. You're putting yourself in the, in, in the very path of temptation. And he said, you must remember the holiness, the justice, and the grace of God. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of, of demons. Now listen, there, there's many ways that we can look at what Paul's saying here. But one of the ways that I think is very prevalent in our world today, in our churches today, is this right here. We think that we can hold hands with God and hold hands with the world at the same time. And God says, look, if you're going to do that, then... You just need to let mine go because it's not going to work that way. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. So with the principle of participation clearly established, Paul now applies it to the question of sacrifices offered to idols and meals uh, in, in pagan temples. How many times do we as believers think that we can come into a church, we can say we worship God, we can sing the songs, we can hear the preaching, and then we can go out into the world and we can just go and watch anything we want to watch. We can go any place we want to go and we say, it's okay. I'm saved. God knows my heart. I love that one. Listen, God knows your heart should scare you more than anything you've ever heard in your life. And Paul is telling these Corinthians, and he's saying to us, look, you cannot walk uh, with God and with demons at the same time. You cannot bow at both altars. Uh, verse 19, uh, Paul says the idol is nothing and means nothing in itself, but behind it there lurks something more sinister. The devil and demons are waiting to uh, snare and destroy God's people. We must be careful. You see, we are called out of this world. The word ecclesia, that's where we get the word church. And it means a called out ones. What have we been called out of? We've been called out of this world. God told the people of Israel, he said, come out from among them and be separate. We as believers, we must come out from among them. We must be separate from them. We cannot go out into the world and tell people, look, it's all right if you do this, even though it's sinful, God still loves you. That's a lie. We must be careful how we walk. And this is what Paul is saying. Uh, in, in verse 20, he says, he says, no. Well, back in verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Some idolatry is blatant. Now, I wouldn't think that any of us would go around and maybe come into your house and you have a little wooden idol there and I see you bowing down to it and offering sacrifice. We probably wouldn't do that here. 
I hope none of you would do that here. But there are some uh, forms of idolatry that are much more uh, subtle. Some idolatry is the prime, ex- but uh, is the prime expression. Idolatry is the prime expression of sinful man's refusal to worship and serve his creator. The powers of evil are as inseparable from pagan feasts as the grace of God is inseparable from the Lord's Supper. Over in the book of Romans, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And he goes on through that chapter, chapter 3 there in Romans, to talk about how they took and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Have we not done that? Yes, we've all done that. And Paul is warning these believers right here in Corinth against this very thing. Attending a pagan temple banquet and being involved in the worship at an idol shrine are not neutral activities. If I go into a place, if I'm involved in any organization, if I get involved in anything that brings dishonor upon God, that causes another to step up and be an idol in my life. And you know an idol is anything you love, worship, and care, and serve more than you do God. Now, you know, when I I prepared this message and I, I thought to myself, you know, I need to get on my knees because... I found that I have many, many idols in my life. You know, Stephen Lawson likes to say, you should never be idle about the idols in your life. We must be careful. Paul is telling these believers in Corinth, he says, you're walking a fine line. You're, you're, you're walking a dangerous area when you think that you can hold hands with God and hold hands with the world or Satan at the same time. And Paul says there in the last part of verse 21 that this constitutes fellowship with demons, which can never be acceptable to a believer. Does it bother you as a believer? Let me ask you this first of all. Are you saved? Okay, are you saved? I just want you to answer that question to yourself. Do you know... That you have repented of your sin, that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, He's forgiven all your sin, and now you belong to Christ. Now, if you can say yes to that, then I want to ask you a question. Why do you listen to music that does not glorify God? Why do you watch anything that doesn't glorify God? Now, you know why I put it that way? Because in the next section of this chapter, you know what Paul's going to say? He's going to say, do everything to the glory of God. Why do we go places that don't glorify God? Why do we associate with things that do not glorify God? That will, you know, if you listen to secular, hey, I'm guilty here too, okay? You know, I love Merle Haggard. I listen to Merle all day long. But I was thinking the other day, I was listening to him, and I thought, you know what? Why am I sitting here listening to Merle say, I think I'll just stay here and drink? How does that glorify God? And I was convicted by that. You sit down and you watch a movie, you watch a television show that glorifies sin. You know, today, you you know one of Satan's most ingenious inventions? It's called a sitcom. Because you know what they've taught, you know what sitcoms have taught us how to do? They've taught us how to laugh at sin. 
You watch a sitcom and you see uh, same-sex couples, you see uh, heterosexual couples living together that are not married, and w so it's no big deal anymore. We laugh at it. They make fun of it. We laugh. When God says how serious it is. And so Paul is telling these believers in Corinth, he's saying, look, God will provide a way of escape when you're tempted, but you got to take that way. And that's why he says uh, there in verse 14, flee from idolatry, run as fast as you can. The cup of the Lord and the cup of demons are diametrically opposed to one another. And for the believers in Corinth to claim that their superior knowledge that an idol is nothing gives them freedom to visit pagan temples and take part in their feasts and then equally be at the Lord's table participating in the benefits of Christ's death is a logical impossibility. You know, they were saying, Paul, look, it's okay if we go to these, because you know demons, uh, th these are not really gods. And Paul says, you're right, they're not really gods, but they're not nothing. They're demons. And he says, you're, you're participating, and, and you go to these places, and, and here's the thing, they would go to the, the pagan temples, and they would eat the food that was offered to idols, but it was more than that. You know, I find it interesting that Throughout history, all false religion, when you have these pagan temples, they always had one particular thing in common. No matter what religion it was, no matter who the demons they were worshiping was, they all had one thing in common, and it was no different there in Corinth. You know what it was? Temple prostitution. And these believers in Corinth would go and say, Paul, it's all right, I'm free in Christ. And Paul says, you don't understand your freedom in Christ at all. You cannot walk and hold hands with both. How can we possibly live to the glory of God if we allow the slightest foothold of the devil to have any part in our life? Does the devil have a foothold in your life? He does mine. I'm not going to lie to you. But Paul tells me how to take care of that. He tells you how to take care of that. And we must look and say, do I live my life to the glory of God? And, and Paul says that not only is this logically inconsistent and foolish, but it will provoke God. As, it did, as the Israelites did. And it will call out his wrath. God sent the nation of Israel into 70 years of captivity. Time after time after time after time throughout the Old Testament, we find Israel being defeated by their enemies. Do you know why? One reason. Idolatry. They began to worship other gods. And God was provoked by this. And Paul is saying, don't think that because you're saved that you are outside being able to provoke God. Now, you and I will never suffer the wrath of God. But I want to tell you what we can face. We can face the discipline of God. And if you've never experienced the discipline of God, I want to tell you it's not fun. Because I have. But I also want to tell you something else. As a believer, if you've never experienced the, the discipline of God, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says you're probably not one of his. Because we all, expl uh, all uh, have taken part in this. 
How can we possibly live to the glory of God and allow Satan to have any part of our lives? And, and we provoke God and call out his wrath against something Paul's already talked about, presumption, presuming upon the grace of God. We're faced with a temptation and we say, you know, I'm going to give you, I know God's going to forgive me, so I'm going to go ahead and give in to this temptation and sin because I know Jesus has died for me and I'll be forgiven. And listen, if you have that kind of an attitude, you know nothing about the grace of God. You know nothing about what Jesus endured. Verse 22 is a powerfully searching question. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? To apply this principle to our lives, and in our very different culture, uh, context is, is not difficult. At its most basic level, it's a call to all who name Christ's name to have nothing to do with any of the manifestations of demonic activity which abounds in our culture. We live in a pornographic society. We live in a society. Have you, have you ever noticed, you know, maybe it's just me. Have you noticed that people in our world today seem to become angrier and angrier? I mean, at life in general. You know why that is, right? They have no hope. They have no truth. But Paul says that you and I, we must apply this to our lives. You know, that if we call on the name of Christ not to have anything to do with anything that represents idols in our lives or sinful activity in our lives, he's simply calling us to a life of holiness. That's what Paul's calling the Corinthians to. That's what he's calling us to. You know, think about, but there are more subtle things than, as I said earlier, than, than just uh, going into someone's house and bowing down to an idol and offering something to it. <clears throat> hey, I'm just make somebody mad at me. That's okay. You ever read your horoscope? Well, if you do, you need to stop. That's demonic. You ever, you ever mess, you know, I remember when I was a kid, and I guess every kid does this, but I'm telling you, any parent that's got any sense will stop it before it happens. And, and we think that, that, that it's no big deal. I want to tell you something, folks. Ouija boards are dangerous, extremely dangerous. What about fortune telling? You know, I remember, you don't, you don't see it so much now, but I remember a while back, you know, if you ever stayed up late night watching TV, every other commercial was about somebody wanting to give you a phone number to call where they could tell your fortune and tell you what all is going to happen to you. I used to know a lady who told me that she was a fortune teller and that God gave her that gift. I, I showed her in the Bible, but she still hung, uh, clung to that. But listen, these are the more subtle inroads of Satan's power to false gods. In horoscopes, we look to what? The stars, rather than looking to God. Ouija boards, that, that's a doorway to, 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 to demonic activity. Fortune telling, there's only one who knows the future. Only one. And God tells us what it is through his word. 
not a deck of cards or anything like that. So we have to be careful. The greed of gambling, the addictive power of sex and pornography, drugs, a quest for power and status. You see, there, there's, there's a lot of ways that these idols can come into our lives. And Paul is calling on these Corinthians. He's saying, uh, it, it all goes back to what he said there in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He says, we all deal with these things. But here's the thing. He said, God has made a way of escape. But you have to take that way. You have to go. If we cultivate any idols, uh, any of these idols in, in the secret chambers of our hearts, how can we pretend to live to the glory of God? You see, not only did God say, you shall have no other gods before me. God says, there will be no other gods before me. There is only one true God. Have you ever wondered why that's the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Why is that number one at the list? Because we are prone to worship. God created us to worship. Now, you know who I have found to be the greatest idol in my life? The greatest danger in my life? You're looking at him. I am. And we have to be careful. We have to, to, to uh, understand that we cannot harbor and cultivate idols in the hidden chambers of our hearts and think that we still worship and live to the glory of God. We've already recognized, as, as Paul has pointed out, the danger of complacency. But here is the equally serious and subtle challenge of the little by little drift into a very dangerous thing. And it's called compromise. Compromise. I'll tell you something that happened to me this week. I'm going to try to say this without mentioning anything particular in detail. So a very well-known preacher went on a radio program, and he was talking about how a lady had approached him and said, my grandson, who is gay, is getting married to a transgender. Should I go? And to make it shorter, I'm not going to quote him everything he said, but he said, basically said this. He says, yes, you should go. Amen. Okay, it was Alistair Begg. A preacher that I have listened to and respected for years, and he said, yes, you should go. You should build that bridge. You should, that, that's how you show love to them. I want to tell you, that's not biblical at all. But, uh, but that's not the part I want to talk about. I was talking with a friend of mine, a preacher friend of mine, and he said to me, he said, what do you think about this? I said, Alistair's wrong. I said, he needs to repent and, and, and get behind the word of God on this. And he said, oh, I don't agree with that. He said, I think that, you know, it's just a matter of her conscience. And, you know, sometimes you got to show love. In way. And I said, that's not showing love. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, that's a compromise. And, once, and here's the thing about compromise. If you do it once, you're going to do it again. And when you do it again, you're going to do it again. 
That's why we must stand. This is what I told this friend of mine. I said, no, you and I as believers, we must stand firm on the truth of God's word, regardless. And if we don't, when we begin to compromise here, we'll begin to compromise there. When we begin to compromise there, we'll compromise over there. And you know what happens when you got all this compromising? Well, the truth just goes out the door. I mean, think about this. In our culture today, in our world today, they, they and you know, to me, it, it shows the utter depravity of men's hearts that they would even think something like this. There is no absolute truth. Okay, now think about this, folks. Do you realize that in some, this, this is, it, it's not funny, but it is funny. I mean, do you realize there are actually people out there that says it's wrong to say two plus two equals four. That that may be my truth, but that doesn't have to be your truth. You know, and, and here's the thing. If I give you $2 and then I give you two more dollars and you say, oh, you gave me $6. Well, there's something wrong with you. You understand that? But here's the point I'm making, is, is Paul says they began to presume upon the grace of God. They began to make compromises. And the next thing you know, all truth has gone out the door. Paul is calling on these Corinthians and he's saying, look, this is a dangerous place. Stay away from these feasts where they're, where they're worshiping idols. Don't, don't presume upon the grace of God that you, when you go in there. Don't compromise and say, well, it's okay if I just do this once. You know, Satan loves that. You know, he'll present a temptation to sin in front of you, and, and he'll say, you know what? God's not going to throw you in hell if you do it just once. But I want to tell you, when you do it once, you're going to do it twice. When you do it twice, you're going to do it three times. We must repent and put away the idols in our life. We must determine that we are going to stand firm upon God's Word and upon the truth of God's Word. We're not going to compromise regardless of what the world thinks about us, regardless of what other Christians think about us. We must stand firm upon the truth and we must say, I will live my life to the glory of God. That's why I exist. And that's why Paul, in the next section of this chapter, he's going to go on to tell them, he's going to say, do everything to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. So let me ask you a question. What do you think it would look like? <clears throat> you wake up on Monday morning and you say, everything I do today is going to be done to the glory of God. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm not going to watch anything. I'm not going to listen to anything that doesn't glorify God. What do you think that would look like for us? How do you think that would change your life? How would it change your family's life? How would it change your home life? How would it change our church if we all did that? Does God forgive sin? Of course He does. Of course He does. But you know, we cannot presume upon God's grace. 
We can't, and, and I think it, it's simple, it's, and I'll say simple, but it's easy for us to do, fall into this trap, to basically take God for granted. You know, now, if you're, if you're married, have you ever had a husband who, you wives who took you for granted? Every wife just shook their head. Husbands, have you ever had a wife that you felt took you for granted? It's not fun feeling, is it? How do you think God must feel when we take him for granted and say, I can give in to this because I know God will forgive me. And Paul there here again, we have to keep coming back to this. Do you know why the Corinthians were like this? Do you know why they're in this mess? Do you know why they were going to these uh, love feasts that were worshiping idols? Do you know why they were compromising? Why they were presuming upon the grace of God? It's a very simple answer. They had left the message of the cross. They had forgotten. It's what uh, Jesus told the church in, in, in the book of Revelation. They have left their first love. And there's only one answer. Repent. Repent. And come back. And put, put, say, Lord, I have, I have sinned against you. I have had idols in my life that I have worshipped and loved and served more than I have you. And God, please forgive me. And if it's heartfelt, I'll tell you what he, he says. You're forgiven, son. You're forgiven, daughter. But we must remember what Jesus said to the woman that was brought to him that was caught in adultery. And they brought her and they cast her down at her feet. The law said she must be stoned till she's dead. But Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Now, he didn't mean that she would be sinless. He just said, you've been caught in this sin and you're guilty. Stop doing that sin. Stop doing this. Stop being involved in adultery. That's what he meant when he said, go and sin no more. <clears throat> and you and I, when he says to us, go and sin no more, he's telling me uh, that, that this idol that I'm worshiping in my life, he says, yes, if you'll repent, I'll forgive you, but stop doing it. So we have an idea that we can go to God and repent of a sin and still hold on to the sin. You know, it reminds me of the lady had an antique cookie jar, belonged to her great, great, great grandmother. It was one of her most prized possessions. She had it on the counter. She had cookies in it. And her little daughter cried out to her one day. And she said, Mommy, Mommy, help me, help me. She said, My hand is stuck. And she had her hand in that cookie jar and couldn't get it out. And the woman pulled and she tugged and she did everything she could. And finally, she just resigned her. She said, I'm going to have to break this beautiful antique cookie jar to get your hand out. And she went and got a little hammer and she had it hand, and she was just about to hit it when the little girl said, Mommy, would it help if I let go of the cookie? And then her hand came right out. But you see how that, how we do God that same way? We say, Lord, make me holy. 
Lord, help me to be more like Christ. And God says, let go of the sin. You got to let go of the sin. And this is what Paul's telling these. He, he's saying idolatry is such a dangerous thing. It's so, it can be so subtle. And, and we have to be on guard. And yes, we may be tempted, but God will provide the way. Let us be sure and take it and flee from idolatry. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and a loving God. And Father, we are so guilty of idolatry in our life. We ask you to forgive us. But Father, may each one of us this morning determine to eradicate all the idols from our life that we can. To stop presuming upon your grace. To, to determine that there will be no compromise. That your truth is absolute. And Father, may we determine to be holy men and women, living our lives and doing everything we do that you might be glorified. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and